is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we like sending our team out on the road to capture your stories, the American people's stories. Our young faith has been going to the villages, the largest retirement community in the country. Jesse's frequently exploring the musical havens that bring so much of the great music that we all love to our airwaves and to our iPods and iPads. And Alex, well, you never know where he's going. Here's his report that he brings us today amidst downpouring rain and a howling wind that you'll hear in the background. It's May 4th, 2017, and it is 4.45 in the morning. I'm in St. Louis, and I was here for other business, and I read an article about this clinic that opens up at 5.15 in the morning and how people line up at 5 a.m. in order to get into this clinic. What are they lining up for? They're lining up for medicine and therapy that helps them overcome their opioid addiction, painkillers, heroin. And I was just so moved by this story, the fact that there's 30 people out here at this time of morning in order to turn their life around. And why this clinic opens up at this time is so that all these people can go to work. Not all of them are working, but there's most of them are working. I don't know if anyone will want to talk to me. I necessarily wouldn't want to talk about my own struggles, but by sharing each other's stories, we can hopefully help one another. Here's my first interview with a gentleman who asked not to be identified. He looks about 30 to 35 years old. So it's, it's almost 5 a.m. right now, and you're, you're out here, and it's, it's an awful day in terms of the rain, too. Yeah. How often are you here? Oh, we can't every day, unless, unless somebody moves up, or, um, you know, a lot of people have, they'll get weekly takes or yeah. weekend takes, and then they'll be able not have to come every week, like people with jobs, like me. And by takes, he means getting a dosage of the withdrawal drug methadone. And it may seem weird to treat an addiction to one drug by giving someone another drug, but for a ton of people like this gentleman, it, it really works for them. And what methadone essentially does is it stimulates opioid receptors in the brain and thereby limits the urge to use opioids like heroin. So did you start getting daily takes and now they've allowed you to do a weekly here? Yeah, once, well, how it works is you get daily and then uh, if all your drops are yeah. clean for so many months and you're going to your groups and stuff. They have their uh, groups inside. They have them, uh, I'm sure it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday. When you're coming here, it's, you know, you might still use the first week or two when yeah. you're coming, you know, until you get leveled yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. And then everything, everything's great after that, you know I mean? As long as you do it right. There's ways you can abuse it and there's ways you can do it right. And how many people here would you say is it heroin or versus, you know, painkillers? Oh, it's about 50-50 there. Okay. People come up here like that's how I started. You know, one day I needed painkillers to get really? painkillers at the hospital for a, for a, a certain incident I had regarding my health. Yeah. And that's how I got started. Most people, I would say, I would say 80% of people get started, just in my opinion, yeah. using, um, you know, uh, pain meds. And uh, so, and then they end up here, they, you know, they don't have them. They don't have the knowledge, and they like like me. I didn't have the knowledge. I didn't realize if I 
abuse them in any way, I would start getting ungodly sick, you know what I mean? And then end up um, having a friend come up to me and basically say, hey, try this. And automatically makes you feel better and then you're hooked. Just like that. Just like that, you're hooked. And the one thing that really hurts is hurts to see is you see now you're starting to see younger and younger people come up here. I mean, there's people that have to have their parents. Oh, they going the yeah, that's all right. They have to have their parents. Um, I just want to finish real quick because I don't want to be rude, but um, they have their parents and stuff come up here with them. Anybody underage or anything, they have to have their parents' approval. So and that's I mean, tough. what parent? Yeah, but yeah. it's it's a lot better than you know your kids out on the street. Yeah. You know, are you concerned about withdrawing from? I'm re- I'm withdrawing now. I, I'll be off of it by the end of the year. Oh wow! I'm, am I concerned about it? Yeah. yeah. I, I'm for no. I I don't think I'll ever use it again. No. Okay. I don't think I'll ever whack that line. I never would have if I would have never taken methadone to stopping. You're not you're not. No, about. I'm I'm what I'm going to do. It's a program. I'm not going to go into it. It's a little. Uh, it's, yeah. It's a certain program yeah. that they provide. Yep. Um, not going to go into that, but they provide it, and um, it makes it easier for you. Yeah. So that's what I'm going to do, and. Um, is this the only the place like this that opens so no. early in the morning? No. The, no there's a couple there. There's um, another one uh, right off of Dunn Road. Actually, my brother goes to it. Okay. Yeah. My brother goes to that one. And, um, yeah, everything started going bad for our family pretty much in 06 when a tragedy happened in the family. And uh, my mom's also been up here because, okay. you know, that's that's the kind of grip it takes on you when, you're, yeah. when you have it around people that have an addict um what would you call it? Um, a problem with yeah. um, being an addict. Yeah. How's having, your mom doing now? Oh, she's off of it. She's been, you know, when I get sick, I'm a big baby. And most men are. And, and it's the women that are more mentally tough. I don't know if it's from going through birth or what, but it, it seems that way. But I see you're wearing a cross. Uh, does your faith help you get through this at all? Oh, yeah. 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 I Definitely. Definitely. I mean, you got to have faith. You yeah. don't. I mean, where else are you going to turn? I, I've never been homeless or anything. Yeah. Thank God. You know, yeah, I it was had, a real low point in a certain. Oh point. yeah, yeah. Whenever, it, when, it, whenever it came to my son, that's when it got bad. When okay. I wasn't seeing my son, and uh, I'm still. Did his mom prevent of, you from seeing him? Did she didn't prevent me? It yeah. was because all I was focused on was where I would get my next. Okay. You know, basically my next fix. You know, but so at least you had the foresight though not to be around him. And, Right, I, I wouldn't have it around him. I wouldn't have it. So that missing him, you know, that's what led me here. Missing yeah. him, um, doing I wanted to do right by him because I grew up with a dad that I couldn't look up to. He seems like he's an alcoholic. Couldn't look up to him. Well, after these short messages, more of Alex's report from the opioid treatment clinic that opens up at five fifteen, so that addicted folks can get help and make it to work. And what inspiring people! What a what a what a courageous guy to just share that with a with a random stranger actually with a microphone to be that committed to healing too and for the right reasons for his family for his boy more with Alex his story these folks story at this opioid clinic here on our American stories
This is Our American Stories, and we return to Alex's reporting from an opioid treatment clinic in St. Louis. When we left off, the anonymous gentleman Alex was speaking with was telling him about the lowest point of his addiction, missing his son, being separated from his son. So that's what led me here was mostly him and oh, myself. Beautiful to be a good example for your yeah, son. Now, I, I, had, I just want him to be able to look up to me. That's why I went to school for something to do with weaponology. Yeah. I'm not going to go into no, it. No, but, no. And I work at another a really good place. And uh, as far as like... Um, that's a cool thing to go to school for, too. Yeah, and I'm gonna, as soon as I get out of here, I can. Uh, that's why I'm working on getting out of here. I should... Wind's crazy, but anyways, I'm going to school for the uh, for um, as soon as I get out of here, I'm gonna be going to not to school, I'm sorry, to the National Guard. I but I gotta be out oh, of here great. first, yeah, yeah. So I'm be going to the National Guard, and that helps. And the other, we have to the, disclose that you're using to the guard. Um, I don't know how it works. Yeah. I talked to a recruiter, but I don't know how exactly how it works with there with that. All I know is there's certain guidelines that yeah. they have you have to make. I'll be out of here before the year's over, so that's. It's, I've been coming. I've been coming here for three and a half years. I was only using for three years. Yeah. I've been coming here for three and a half now. So, but a lot of these people, man, they've been they've been here the, a long time. You know, I'm not gonna name any names, and they're and they're really good people. They really are. They just got trapped up. Most of the guys up there, I mean, you can tell they got to go to work. You know, I'm I'm off today, but most of the guys up there, they're working. Uh, that's why we let. And anybody who is working, like as a as a as a line, we'll let them go in front of us. It's it almost like a little community then. It's like you guys, well, like well, with, saying, the, like with the people that's been here for a while, you, you know, if you've know been coming here, yeah, yeah, encourage definitely. Them in the right way, I've yeah. got one of my best friends that I just when I met, you know, three years ago, come here that I could he could ask anything from me, and I can ask anything from him. Yeah, I mean, it's just they they're all really good people. Yeah, I mean, people see us standing in this line, they think, oh, a bunch of junkies. They have no, no idea. Until you go through yeah. it, you don't know it. Until you go through it, until you walk into that, it's like a web. You're walking into that spider web, and you get trapped. And well, it can get anyone. It comes, yeah. it's, it's got oh, rich yeah. people, middle class oh, yeah. people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How did you afford to use when you didn't have a job? Like, where'd you get the money? Oh man, when when you're when you're down and out, it's, uh, when you're down and out like that, when when uh, that's how that's how I, that's why I say when if you haven't been through it, you have no idea what it's like because you will. You will do things you never thought you would do. You would, you, you'll, you'll, you'll just, you'll just hustle, man. You hustle, hustle, hustle. Like here, we come here and we struggle, you know, because with it being, you know, what it is. I mean, it's not much though compared to what we yeah, were. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's not much at all. But compared to what we were doing, it was hard to hear with the wind. But what he was saying is that he spent two hundred dollars a day on heroin. And he had to get the money by stealing and doing other things that he didn't really want to get into. Thank God I've never had any charges. I don't have a background. Don't have any felonies. Never did time. So that's all good. That's why I'm able to do things I'm doing. That's why. And, you know, and, you know there's some guys up here do, but I don't judge them. You know, they just fell into a bad cycle of life. You know, yeah. some of them, like I, I come from a broken home, but I won't let that keep me down. And a lot of that has to do with my faith. A lot of that has to do with my son. Yeah. Me, you know, wanting to be a better person. Just in general yeah. you know all that but um besides that though with the ending note because i'm gotta get ready to go in here in a minute um if this place weren't here i don't know where i'd be right now so it is a, it's a really good place you, you know i had no if i if i would have known about this place a year in i would have been here i wouldn't have been on that crap for three years if i'd known about this place no way 
no way I hit my bottom into the year and a half stage. I hit my bottom when I was not seeing my son on a basis. That's the, like I said before, that's that's the part that crushed me the most. I mean, standing here saying it, it chokes me up. You know, that's the part that crushed me the most because it's my only child. Well, you hear it in his voice. And by the way, you're hearing all that wind again and that rain because Alex was out out in line with a whole group of people. Uh, well, he got out there at 4 in the morning. The, the doors opened at 5.15. And Alex was there because he'd read a story in the local paper, in the St. Louis paper, about this opioid clinic where people were lining up early so they could then go to work. And we track every story here on Our American Stories. And one of the big ones is, Opioid addiction in this country, and we're looking to find well to find out what the problem is, and then ultimately we're going to try and track some solutions and park ourselves in a couple of towns that are really struggling and working with this. So follow us on this, but uh, we know somebody, all of us, who's suffering from this. It's not far from all of our families. Alex then continued his reporting before the doors of the clinic opened and everyone ushered in. And I talked to one more person when I was here. He also asked not to be identified. Um, and we could keep talking as long as the doors to the clinic didn't open yet. Of course, I didn't want to get in his way for why he's really here. You don't have to say your job, but what kind of work do you do? I work in a uh, like a factory that makes landscaping blocks. Okay. <laughs> landscaping blocks. Like, what does that mean specifically? Um, it, you ever drive by a building and see a big retaining wall yeah. with blocks? Yeah. That's what we make. Okay. Yeah. Uh, how long have you been coming here? Um, a couple years. Okay. And um, it's really changed your life taking methadone, or? Yeah, I don't. I don't use anymore. Okay. I don't use street drugs anymore. Yeah. Yeah. How did it start out? Were you on painkillers, or did you go? Straight yeah, that's straight? how. That's how it started out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and that just. You know, it was, uh, I just couldn't get off of them. You know, it just, you just feel sick after you, you know, take them for a legitimate reason for a while. And after six months of that, then you try to wean yourself off of them and you just feel miserable. How long were you using? Um, a number of years. Yeah. Yeah. And any real low points? Oh, sure, sure. I could... I don't know how much time you have. But no, I got time. Yeah, until, until you got time. Like the no, gentleman I was no, just talking I mean, to, not seeing his son. You know, he was just telling me. And, yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it gets terrible. You know, because you you can't. The doctors eventually are just going to say I, I can't write you prescriptions anymore. So you you turn to the street, and, and uh, you know you just have to lower yourself and do some some shady stuff to to get what you need. How much were you spending around a, a day on it at your at your peak? Oh, uh, before I came here, um, you know, sometimes a hundred or two hundred bucks, and not every day. I mean, it couldn't. I couldn't have spent that much every day, but there were plenty of days where I'd use a hundred or two hundred dollars worth. Were you working at that or time? Or more? Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's another low point. You know, you end up burning two jobs because you. Yeah. You know falling asleep at your desk or whatever <laughs> so um and how how cheap is this compared to to that it's it's, it's a lot cheaper than that yeah it's around yeah. 15 or 17 dollars 17 dollars a day, a day yeah. yeah you know you can't 17 dollars buying something on the street is not going to get you what you need yeah. to, to just even feel normal that that's what it got to it wasn't 
I wasn't trying to get high. I was just trying to feel normal enough yeah. to function, you know, and not feel sick. Like, like I had the damn flu. So that's interesting. That's I, think, I think most to. people, when they you know read about it in the papers, they you know as this last guy was saying, like these junkies in a line, like they they probably think it's people trying to get high, and they don't they don't know that people are just trying to feel normal. As you said, yeah, yeah. This I taking methadone. I don't I don't have any. I don't feel hot, you know, yeah. buzzed or anything. That if you took it without having yeah. a tolerance, you you'd probably fall around on the ground, and, you know either pass out or you'd be wasted but I, I don't feel I just feel normal do you have a family yeah yeah I'm, I'm married but I'm separated and okay. I have kids and that my kids finally are aware of the situation yeah. so that sucks but but uh, are they able to overcome I'm, that now not knowing that you're in a good place um it's it's difficult yeah you know it's not it's not ideal well, there's time yeah there's it could, there's still time. Yeah, I, I still talk to him every day. So well, every day is good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm busy, but every day they're still talking to you. Right, and I'm working every day now, so it's you know that the low point was I wasn't working, trying to come here and trying to make miracles happen. So um, things are going pretty good now, right? Yeah. So good. I, I'm I'm an advocate of it. You know, I hope these places stay around. Yeah. There's so many too many people dying out there. My understanding is there's not too many places and there's, there's no. not too many doctors who are able to subscribe either. Right, and and a lot of them that do are do irres- do so irresponsibly. Yeah. So, well, thank you. I, I appreciate it. No problem, man. Have a good day. You too. And there you have it, Alex's report from an opioid clinic and a treatment center in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, where he had been on other business. Read a peep, an article in the paper. Uh, phoned in and said, hey, I need to stay an extra day. I need to do this. I think it would be good material. I said, let's do it. And there you have it. And we're going to continue to track this story. Uh, An estimated 40,000 people die from opioid overdoses each and every year. And that makes it an official crisis in this country. I think enough people are talking about it now. That's good. We want to hear real-life stories from real-life people, and that's what we do here on Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to listen to all that we do. Great job on this, Alex, as always. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And when in doubt, the sound bites from Sling Blade. Never heard. Yeah, shut up. Yeah. And this is Our American Stories. Focus on graduation. And for the, for the month, we are going to focus on mostly great graduation speeches. And occasionally some really wretched ones. And today... We have a commencement speech that's regimented, and it's poignant. It's a commencement address to the students at the University of Texas at Austin in 2014. An address that's received almost 4 million views on YouTube. That means it's got to be pretty good. 
I know mine by Governor Keene of New Jersey at Fairleigh Dickinson University in 1984 was not one that you'll find on YouTube. Real snore fest, huh? A real snore fest. <laughs> this commencement speaker is most often recognized and credited with the organizing and execution of Operation Neptune Spear, more commonly known as the special ops raid that led to the death of Osama bin Laden. His name is Admiral William H. Bill McRaven, himself a 1977 Navy ROTC grad of the University of Texas. Let's join him now. So the university's slogan is, what starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. Tonight, there are almost 8,000 students. So that great paragon of analytical rigor, ask.com, says that the average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10, then in five generations, 125 years, the class of 2014 will have changed the lives of 800 million people. 800 million people. Think about it. Over twice the population of the United States. Go one more generation, and you can change the entire population of the world. Eight billion people. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever, you're wrong. I saw it happen every day in Iraq and Afghanistan. A young army officer makes a decision to go left instead of right down a road in Baghdad, and the 10 soldiers with him are saved from a close-in ambush. In Kandahar province, Afghanistan, a non-commissioned officer from the female engagement team senses that something isn't right and directs the infantry platoon away from a 500-pound IED, saving the lives of a dozen soldiers. But if you think about it, not only were those soldiers saved by the decisions of one person, but their children were saved, and their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. Let's continue with Admiral McRaven's commencement address. I've been a Navy SEAL for 36 years, but it all began when I left UT for basic SEAL training in Coronado, California. Basic SEAL training is six months of long, torturous runs in the soft sand, midnight swims in the cold water off San Diego, obstacle courses, unending calisthenics, days without sleep, and always being cold, wet, and miserable. It is six months of being constantly harassed by professionally trained warriors who seek to find the weak of mind and body and, and eliminate them from ever becoming a Navy SEAL. But the training also seeks to find those students who can lead in an environment of constant stress, chaos, failure, and hardships. To me, basic SEAL training was a lifetime of challenges crammed into six months. So here are the 10 lessons I learned from basic SEAL training that hopefully will be of value to you as you move forward in life. Every morning in SEAL training, my instructors, who at the time were all Vietnam veterans, would show up in my barracks room, and the first thing they'd do was inspect my bed. If you did it right, the corners would be square, the covers would be pulled tight, the pillow centered just under the headboard, and the extra blanket folded neatly at the foot of the rack. It was a simple task, mundane at best, but every morning we were required to make our bed to perfection. It seemed a little ridiculous at the time, particularly in light of the fact that we were aspiring to be real warriors, tough, battle-hardened SEALs. But the wisdom of this simple act 
has been proven to me many times over. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride, and it will encourage you to do another task, and another, and another. And by the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that the little things in life matter. If you can't do the little things right, you'll never be able to do the big things right. And if by chance you have a miserable day, you will come home to a bed that is made. And a made bed gives you encouragement that tomorrow will be better. So if you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. McRaven then went on to lesson number two. During SEAL training, the students during training, the students are all broken down into boat crews. Each crew is seven students, three on each side of a small rubber boat, and one coxswain to help guide the dinghy. Every day, your boat crew forms up on the beach and is instructed to get through the surf zone and paddle several miles down the coast. In the winter, the surf off San Diego can get to be eight to ten feet high, and it is exceedingly difficult to paddle through the plunging surf unless everyone digs in. Every paddle must be synchronized to the stroke count of the coxswain. Everyone must exert equal effort, or the boat will turn against the wave and be unceremoniously dumped back on the beach. For the boat to make it to its destination, everyone must paddle. You can't change the world alone. You will need some help. And to truly get from your starting point to your destination takes friends, colleagues, the goodwill of strangers, and a strong coxswain to guide you. If you want to change the world, find someone to help you paddle. And then we get to lesson number three of this great commencement speech by Admiral McRaven. Over a few weeks of difficult training, my SEAL class, which started with 150 men, was down to just 42. There were now six boat crews of seven men each. I was in the boat with the tall guys, but the best boat crew we had was made up of the little guys, the munchkin crew, we called them. No one was over five foot five. The Munchkin boat crew had one American Indian, one African American, one Polish American, one Greek American, one Italian American, and two tough kids from the Midwest. They out paddled, outran, and outswam all the other boat crews. The big men in the other boat crews would always make good natured fun of the tiny little flippers the Munchkins put on their tiny little feet prior to every swim. But somehow these little guys, from every corner of the nation and the world, always had the last laugh, swimming faster than everyone and reaching the shore long before the rest of us. SEAL training was a great equalizer. Nothing mattered but your will to succeed, not your color, not your ethnic background, not your education, not your social status. If you want to change the world, measure a person by the size of their heart, not by the size of their flippers. And... By now, the student body is just riveted. They've not heard a speech like this before at four years at UT, that's for sure. And there's just no replacing the commanding presence of this guy. If you haven't seen this, you have to watch it, too. Because this guy is up there crisp as crisp can be, but you're thinking, that's not the usual caricature of a military guy that you see in the movies. Some dummy who's just hammering you over the head for no damn reason but to follow some stupid rule. That's not what's going on here. And the kids know it. When we come back, you're going to hear the rest of this great speech by Admiral McRaven 
at the University of Texas at Austin. And remember, this is right after Osama bin Laden had been killed, not too long after. This is the guy who helped spearhead that effort. We all know what SEAL Team 6 did. And that's an extraordinary group of men who did that. When we come back, Admiral McRaven, we're doing commencement speeches all month long, the good, the bad, and the ugly, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Commencement addresses all month long. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Admiral McRaven, we're going to catch his. By the way, he started the speech by telling everyone he didn't remember the graduation speaker. At his graduation, he was too hungover, so he wanted to keep it short and sweet, which got everyone laughing. Well, now we're on to lesson number four, and McRaven continues. Several times a week... The instructors would line up the class and do a uniform inspection. It was exceptionally thorough. But it seemed that no matter how much effort you put into starching your hat or pressing your uniform or polishing your belt buckle, it just wasn't good enough. The instructors would find something wrong. For failing uniform inspection, the student had to run, fully clothed, into the surf zone, then wet from head to toe, roll around on the beach until every part of your body was covered with sand. The effect was known as a sugar cookie. You stayed in the uniform the rest of the day, cold, wet, and sandy. There were many a student who just couldn't accept the fact that all their efforts were in vain, that no matter how hard they tried to get the uniform right, it went unappreciated. Those students didn't make it through training. Those students didn't understand the purpose of the drill. You were never going to succeed. You were never going to have a perfect uniform. The instructors weren't going to allow it. Sometimes, no matter how well you prepare or how well you perform, you still end up as a sugar cookie. It's just the way life is sometimes. If you want to change the world, get over being a sugar cookie and keep moving forward. Great lesson. And here is lesson number five. Every day during training, you were challenged with multiple physical events, long runs, long swims, obstacle courses, hours of calisthenics, something designed to test your mettle. Every event had standards, times you had to meet. If you failed to meet those times, Those standards, your name was posted on a list, and at the end of the day, those on the list were invited to a circus. A circus was two hours of additional calisthenics designed to wear you down, to break your spirit, to force you to quit. No one wanted a circus. A circus meant more fatigue, and more fatigue meant that the following day would be more difficult and more circuses were likely. But at some time during SEAL training, everyone made the circus list. But an interesting thing happened to those who were constantly on the list. Over time, those students who did two hours of extra calisthenics got stronger and stronger. The pain of the circuses built inner strength and physical resiliency. Life is filled with circuses. You will fail. You will likely fail often. It will be painful. It will be discouraging. At times, it will test you to your very core. 
But if you, don't, if you want to change the world, don't be afraid of the circuses. And on to lesson six. At least twice a week, the trainees were required to run the obstacle course. The obstacle course contained 25 obstacles, including a 10-foot wall, a 30-foot cargo net, a barbed wire crawl, to name a few. But the most challenging obstacle was the slide for life. It had a three-level, 30-foot tower at one end and a one-level tower at the other. In between was a 200-foot-long rope. You had to climb the three-tiered tower, and once at the top, you grabbed the rope, swung underneath the rope, and pulled yourself hand over hand until you got to the other end. The record for the obstacle course had stood for years when my class began in 1977. The record seemed unbeatable until one day a student decided to go down the slide for life headfirst. Instead of swinging his body underneath the rope and inching his way down, he bravely mounted the top of the rope and thrust himself forward. It was a dangerous move, seemingly foolish and fraught with risk. Failure could mean injury and being dropped from the course. Without hesitation, the student slid down the rope perilously fast. Instead of several minutes, it only took him half that time. And by the end of the course, he had broken the record. If you want to change the world, sometimes you have to slide down the obstacles head first. Take risks is what he's telling these young people. And by the way, they're rarely told that. Get an A, get an A, get an A. He's saying, take the risk. Here's lesson number seven. During the land warfare phase of training, the students are flown out to San Clemente Island, which lies off the coast of San Diego. The waters off San Clemente are a breeding ground for the great white sharks. To pass SEAL training, there are a series of long swims that must be completed. One is the night swim. Before the swim, the instructors joyfully brief the students on all the species of sharks that inhabit the waters off San Clemente. They assure you, however, that no student has ever been eaten by a shark, at least not that they can remember. But you are also taught that if a shark begins to circle your position, stand your ground. Do not swim away. Do not act afraid. And if a shark, hungry for a midnight snack, darts towards you, then summons up all your strength and punch him in the snout, and he will turn and swim away. There are a lot of sharks in the world. If you hope to complete the swim, you will have to deal with them. So if you want to change the world, don't back down from the sharks. Yeah, you're wondering how much of that is being taught at our major campuses in this country. You've got to think, not a bit. And that's what was so great about this speech. He was challenging a lot of the orthodoxies of the campus life itself with the greatest of institutions, the U.S. military. Lesson number eight. As Navy SEALs, one of our jobs is to conduct underwater attacks against enemy shipping. We practice this technique ex- extensively during training. The ship attack mission is where a pair of SEAL divers is dropped off outside an enemy harbor and then swims well over two miles underwater using nothing but a depth gauge and a compass to get to the target. It is comforting to know that there is open water above you. But as you approach the ship, which is tied to a pier, the light begins to fade. The steel structure of the ship blocks the moonlight. It blocks the surrounding street lamps. It blocks all ambient light. To be successful in your mission, you have to swim under the ship and find the keel, the center line, and the deepest part of the ship. This is your objective. But the keel is also the darkest part of the ship, where you cannot see your hand in front of your face. 
where the noise from the ship's machinery is deafening and where it gets to be easily disoriented and you can fail. Every SEAL knows that under the keel, at that darkest moment of the mission, is a time when you need to be calm, when you must be calm, when you must be composed, when all your tactical skills, your physical power, and your inner strength must be brought to bear. If you want to change the world, you must be your very best in the darkest moments. And here is Lesson 9. It is on Wednesday of Hell Week that you paddle down to the mud flats and spend the next 15 hours trying to survive the freezing cold, the howling wind, and the incessant pressure to quit from the instructors. As the sun began to set that Wednesday evening, was ordered into the mud. The mud consumed each man till there was nothing visible but our heads. The instructors told us we could leave the mud if only five men would quit. Looking around the mud flat, it was apparent that some students were about to give up. It was still over eight hours till the sun came up. Eight more hours of bone-chilling cold. The chattering teeth and the shivering moans of the trainees were so loud, it was hard to hear anything. And then one voice began to echo through the night. One voice raised in song. The song was terribly out of tune, but sung with great enthusiasm. One voice became two, and two became three, and before long, everyone in the class was singing. The instructors threatened us with more time in the mud if we kept up the singing, but the singing persisted, and somehow the mud seemed a little warmer, and the wind a little tamer, and the dawn not so far away. If I have learned anything in my time traveling the world, it is the power of hope, the power of one person, a Washington, a Lincoln, King, Mandela. One person can change the world by giving people hope. So if you want to change the world, start singing when you're up to your neck in mud. And then came the last and probably the most important lesson. And this is how the speech by Admiral McRaven ended. Finally, in SEAL training, there's a bell. A brass bell that hangs in the center of the compound for all the students to see. All you have to do to quit, all you have to do to quit is ring the bell. Ring the bell and you no longer have to wake up at five o'clock. Ring the bell and you no longer have to be in the freezing cold swims. Ring the bell and you no longer have to do the runs, the obstacle course, the PT, and you no longer have to endure the hardships of training. All you have to do is ring the bell to get out. If you want to change the world, don't ever, ever ring the bell. To the class of 2014, you are moments away from graduating, moments away from beginning your journey through life, moments away from starting to change the world for the better. It will not be easy, but you are the class of 2014, the class that can affect the lives of 800 million people in the next century. Start each day with a task completed. Find someone to help you through life. Respect everyone. Know that life is not fair and that you will fail often. But if you take some risks, step up when the times are the toughest, face down the bullies, lift up the downtrodden, and never, ever give up. If you do these things, the next generation and the generations that follow will live in a world far better than the one we have today. And what started here will indeed have changed the world for the better. Thank you very much. Hook'em horns. Hook'em horns. And it doesn't get better than that, folks. A lucky class. 
at the University of Texas in 2014, Admiral William H. Bill McRaven. This is commencement month. We're going to play the good, the bad, and the ugly. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. stories and every once in a while we like to play John Denver songs I love John Denver and Jesse's just <laughs> shaking his head but this is Greg's segment nice. yes Greg this is Greg's segment and by the way the thing about music that's so great is it brings people together and it separates people <laughs> how could this song ever separate anybody well it did there are some people who once you play John Denver they have to go into a laboratory oh, I just don't understand. it's not me I actually love John Denver He's and great. Metallica so go figure put <laughs> yeah. me in a very unique category but I like everything and so Greg stumbled upon a story well that we just had to do Greg tell us a little bit about this young lady uh, that we're about to report on yeah, her name is Kaylee and her she wrote a, a blog and it kept popping up on my social network Facebook page. And after a while, you know, I'm scrolling down and a certain amount of times you see it where you're thinking, oh, this must be a good piece because I keep seeing it on different people's feed, sharing it. So I'm like, fine, I'll click on it. And I read it and I was blown away. It's a piece um, that's very unique in that uh, it's about adoption, but it's atypical and you're going to see why. Well, let's take a listen. Hi, my name is Kaylee. I have unruly red hair, brownish eyes. People say, did you know your eyes match your hair? And freckles. I feel most alive when I'm outdoors or making something with my hands. I describe things in my head when I'm alone, thinking of how I'd write them if someone were to ask. I've always been partial to kittens in rainy days. I thrive on seasons, although my three years of living in California were some of my favorite years so far. Also, I'm adopted. I've pretty much always been adopted. I took my first breath and my birth mother held me. She had already chosen some people for me to call mommy and daddy. I waited in a foster home for a couple of months and then... I was adopted. I remember reading books about adopted kids growing up. I remember how they would find out. It was always at a birthday party or in an argument. Someone would carefully plan how to break the news 
or they'd blurt it out in a spot of anger. Books made adoption seem like a secret. Not the good kind of secret, like what you bought your dad for Christmas, but the kind of secret that hurts a little. The kind nobody really wanted to tell you, and that they thought you should probably know anyway. The kind that makes your life spiral out of control, your identity suddenly in crisis. That's not my story. My parents were proud. Being adopted was a special gift. My parents would tell me the story of how they got me every night before bed. I loved hearing it. I loved hearing how they prayed and prayed for a baby, how God found the perfect woman to carry their baby for them, and how the lady whose tummy I was in so generously and lovingly gave me to them. In this story, I was not someone to be ashamed of that nobody wanted. I was someone to be proud of that was cherished and plucked by the hand of God himself to be placed in the most perfect family. In my mind, everyone was adopted. I remember being at a friend's house and not being able to sleep. Her mom snuggled me and offered to tell me a story. What does your mom tell you when you can't sleep, she asked. She tells me the story of how she got me. How did you get your kids? I remember her hesitating and chuckling, asking what my mom tells. I told her of my adoption and I'm sure she sighed a sigh of relief, knowing she didn't have to have that talk with me. So I say this to the mama who is pregnant. The mama who feels so lost and in over her head, not knowing if she can do this, or if she wants to, or if this little life should end. Adoption is beautiful. It is life-giving. It is one of the most selfless and loving things you can do for that baby in your womb. There is a man and woman out there waiting for a call. A call that they can finally have a baby. When my dad found out my mom had gone out to get Christmas presents, they had literally waited by the phone and checked messages for months and months, hoping for news of a baby. Dad wrote down all the information, hung a special card on the tree, and waited. My mom came home, and I just remember that picture they always show me. It's a picture of her looking at this card, her hand over her mouth, and complete and utter joy, disbelief, and excitement flooding her face. That picture alone makes me feel so completely loved and wanted. Imagine my life with them, full of love, full. They fostered a love for my birth mother inside of me as well. So mama, consider this. Maybe this baby is meant to be yours. To be held and snuggled. To listen to your comforting voice and grow up in your home. But don't forget, adoption is beautiful and special and maybe someone has been praying that the Lord would send them a babe. Either way, your baby has a life worth living. worth every second. Yeah, and that wasn't ordinary, Greg, anything. But you also comment here that you, you dug up some Facebook responses and comments, which are always interesting. This was one quote, I did not give up anything. In fact, I did not give up when I chose adoption. I never gave up. I kept going. Our decision was not about giving up anything, but about giving everything, life, love, and hope. 
And Lindsay Kruger, who works at Adoption Option, a child placement agency, said a misconception in her field is that a child is placed in adoption because the birth mother didn't care or just gave up or rejected their child. She said this couldn't be further from the truth. They want the best life possible for their children and feel that at this time they cannot provide that. Through the pain and loss that these birth moms go through, it is beautiful to see the immense love they have for their child, Kruger says. And Greg, thanks for this piece on Kaylee's life, and thank you, Kaylee, for doing it. And we love doing these adoption stories. They just, well, it's love of a stranger incarnate. This is Our American Stories. Just let your love go. is our american stories and we love to tell stories from all corners of the american culture and every now and then we check in with folks who are tracking what's happening on our nation's college campuses whether it's about dating at boston college beating anxiety workshops at ohio state or political correctness at yale we talk about these things because even if you're not attending these schools or these exact schools or your kids are what happens on these campuses don't stay on the campuses for long. They creep into our K-12, they creep into America, corporate America, and right into the fabric of our country. And on the show today is Stuart Taylor Jr., and we're talking about a sensitive subject with him because the book is about a sens- sensitive subject. His new book, The Campus Rape Frenzy, The Attack on Due Process at America's Universities. And Stuart, thanks for joining us. You know, Stuart, one of the most compelling hours we did in the hour we put out from the air, and we do only stories. We don't do politics. We haven't mentioned uh-huh. Donald Trump. We're not going to. We're not mentioning anybody. We just tell stories. And we did a retrospective on the Duke rape case. And uh, it, was, it was fascinating to watch a faculty instantaneously condemn a student and run a, a lacrosse team off the campus and a coach without even knowing the facts. Talk about, before we even start your work in this area what led you to this space and did the duke case have anything to do with it Stuart? oh yeah um my my co-author on the current book and i wrote a book uh i started it and he joined me about the duke lacrosse rape fraud which you just mentioned uh that occurred in 2006 to 7 the book came out in 2007 uh, title was Until Proven Innocent. And um, what prompted us both to get into it, my co-author Casey Johnson is a professor, is we both saw the, the academics and the media in particular uh, betraying their supposed devotion to the truth and to principles and to fairness and forming themselves into something of a lynch mob. Now, there was a crooked DA, too, uh, he he uh, persecuted innocent young men who he knew were innocent in order to try and win an election. He ended up being disbarred, uh, but he was just one guy. But what made it uh, what made it emblematic of a larger phenomenon, terribly larger phenomenon, uh, is the behavior of the media and the faculty and everything that's occurred since then, uh, since the three Duke lacrosse players who were indicted were resoundingly proven innocent, uh, has only confirmed that the media and the academics did not learn anything from that experience. They still rushed to judgment. They still presumed guilt. They're still outrageous in the way they behave. 
And by the way, Stuart, we want to start off and we'll remind people every minute we talk, this is, this is not... This is not a reflection on what we think should happen to rapists on a college campus. Rape does occur. It occurs there like it occurs everywhere else in life. There needs to be diligence, and and the folks who commit these atrocities need to be taken to justice. But what we're talking about here is the presumption of innocence and what happens on college campuses. So you you, you started this with, with the Duke rape case. Let's talk a little bit about the other highly publicized case we're going to be digging into a little bit, and that's the University of Virginia and Rolling Stone. Uh, two of the folks here, I went to UVA Law School, and Alex was a, graduated from UVA as an undergrad. Um, talk, uh, about, talk about that story before yeah. we then, then continue on into yeah. the details of your book, Stuart. Yes, uh, my dad was UVA class of 35, so we all go back with UVA. And I would certainly certainly reconfirm what you said. Yes, rape's a terrible problem on campus. I can elaborate later why this presumption of guilt culture makes it worse, not better, and makes women, puts women in more danger, not less. But University of Virginia, a young woman named Jackie, uh, her last name's Coakley, actually. Most people won't publish it, but there's no reason not to, uh, who seems to be addled, uh, had a crush on a guy and he was not noticing her. So she concocted a wild story for the purpose of gaining his attention. This is what we now really happened. She claimed that she was taken into a room at a UVA fraternity by, I think, nine guys, raped by seven of them brutally on top of broken glass after they smashed a table uh, by pushing her onto it, uh, and, you know, bloody, just, you know, horrible, 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 and that after that she left and she was telling her friends about it, and their reaction was not, come on, let's go to the police their reaction was well don't tell anybody about this because it might it might hurt our chances of getting into the fraternity just a wild crazy implausible tale rolling stone uh lapped it up and published it uh, as though it were obviously true most of the rest of the media picked it up and bit by bit by bit every bit of it has proved to be a total lie and yet in spite of that the university faculty, the university administration, and even most of the University of Virginia student body uh, are acting as though it was true. They're saying, well, it doesn't really matter if she lied. You know, things like this happen all the time, and it's good to have the narrative out there. It was, uh, it was unspeakable outrage, and it's still an unspeakable outrage in, in terms of the way people are handling it. And, you know, due process is something that's so fundamental to America. I mean, we have a Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendment that are dedicated to this. And, and by the way, these are tough principles, Stuart. You know, the, the exclusionary rule that comes from unreasonable search and seizures and, and the, the right to a fair and speedy trial. I mean, look, we could be Singapore and Indonesia and we could just lock people up. But the whole reason the framers found the Bill of Rights was to make the state prove its case. The state can do terrible things. And mobs, combined with the state, can do even crazier things and so that's why we have these uh, these civil rights, and yet they seem to be thrown out the door uh, by the very faculty who should be should be teaching better, Stuart. And and so yes. what did you what did you learn about these these faculty members? Who were they on the campuses of UVA and Duke? And what what were they selling? What were they? What was this? What was really going on with them, Stuart? Well, at Duke and UVA and all other campuses, uh, over the last thirty years, there have been a lot of people hired for. 
uh, basically propaganda-type faculty jobs. The left-wing propagandists, they're not really uh, distinguished scholars in most cases. Uh, many of them are in gender studies. Many of them are in racial studies. Many of them are in sociology or political science or whatever. Not so many of them in physics, let's say, or, or high-order high, high mathematics. Right. And these people's mission in life uh, and, and the sinecures they have, because they don't have to work very hard, uh, is to try and um, push the United States into a kind of uh, what to me would be a left-wing dystopia. And I'm speaking, by the way, not as a uh, not as a conservative. I'm not a conservative. I'm a moderate. But I've got my eyes open to what's going on on the campuses. So they uh, seized on, they always seize on everything that comes along that would give them an opportunity to bash uh, whites or males or privileged people or rich people or athletes or anyone else they don't like and claim that they've been oppressing uh, whichever uh, person is complaining at the time. In these cases, it's been women who said they were raped who, in fact, were not raped and had other motives for making up lies. Uh, so at, at Duke, um, there was a woman who had complicated motives for making up lies, and their district attorney had complicated mo- political motives for pretending he believed her. But the Duke professors, uh, the ones I'm describing, who dominate, uh, you know, there are plenty of, plenty of good professors left, but they're terrified of the hard-left professors, because the hard-left professors will call them racist, will call them sexist, will occupy the president's office, will go on TV and trash everybody else on the campus. And so at Duke, not a single one of the, let's say, sane professors spoke up publicly for many months after this started. At UVA, it uh, it started differently because it was kind of media-driven by Rolling Stone magazine. But all these things are media-driven in the end. One reason why the left, uh, you know, the hard left has so much power on campuses is the, the mainstream media, including the New York Times, for which I had eight, I worked for eight good years, but uh, it wouldn't be good now. Uh, the New York Times leading the pack uh, presumes guilt every time. And so it has a lot to do with narrative construction, Stuart. If you, if you believe the narrative of what you're calling these leftist folks, which is that men are bad, capitalism is bad, and, and, and white people are bad, and that stuff is being sold on campuses, and we're talking about it regularly, then whatever comports with that narrative, everybody runs into, and the truth be damned. You're right. And what's most remarkable to me, well, there's so much that's remarkable about it, but the role of the media is particularly stunning. And I think what you see happening here with the New York Times and most other big media organizations, there are obviously some smaller outlets that, that, that publish sensible stuff on this, uh, is the old sensationalist impulse, the old sells more newspapers to have a lot of sensationalism, is working in sync with the ideological biases we were talking about. And there's no restraint pushing the other way because people on campuses in particular and people in newsrooms are scared to say what they really think if they think this is nonsense. And, um, and it, you know, it, it ties in very closely with the kinds of protests we've seen uh, driving conservative speakers uh, off campuses or driving moderate speakers off campuses. Um, and and it, all, it all ties together in, into one big package. Uh, yeah. The due process horrors and the free speech horrors are very closely related. It's a toxic brew. And when we come back, Stuart Taylor, Jr., author of The Campus Rape Frenzy, The Attack on Due Process at America's Universities, his story here on Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We're joined by Stuart Taylor, Jr., author of The Campus Rape Frenzy, The Attack on Due Process at America's Universities. And Stuart, we had a disclaimer before. Rape does occur on college campuses. And you had said something interesting. Before we go to more stories, you said that this new kind of uh, intolerance that, that turns into almost you know, a mob prosecution without looking at the truth of the matter and so much of the so much of what's happening in terms of the apparatus of how to deal with rape and reporting of rape on campus and due process has actually made it worse for girls on campuses not better and made it more dangerous talk about why that's so Stuart. yeah there's three main reasons first is this movement to try and you know, have a campus kangaroo court approach to uh, to rape, which has people in government uh, supporting it, and it has a lot of people in academia supporting it, uh, and a lot of activists. This movement wants to drive people away from the police and prosecutors. They discourage young women who are really raped from going to the police and prosecutors. And they say, oh, they won't be as nice to you as we will. We know the guy you're accusing is guilty. We won't allow you to be cross-examined. You know, we won't give him a fair trial. So just come to us, and we'll railroad this guy and kick him out of school, and you'll win. Well, if he's really a rapist, that means he gets kicked out of school and he goes somewhere else and rapes people, perhaps, uh, instead of going to prison where he belongs. The, the, the increasingly common episode where he's not a rapist, young women are being misled by people who have influence over them, professors, uh, bureaucrats, uh, uh, into thinking that, say, an unhappy sexual experience to which they fully consented uh, was actually a rape, if that a year later or a day later they came to regret it. Maybe, you know, oh, I was drunk, I wouldn't have done that if I was sober, that sort of thing. And so they are messing up the minds of a lot of young women, and finally they completely discredit their own system. It's going to take a while, but over time it will become obvious to everyone whose eyes are open that a campus adjudication that says this guy is guilty of rape or sexual misconduct uh, is not to be trusted. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean he did anything. It doesn't mean the woman is a victim. It just means that somebody got railroaded. Uh, Whereas real law enforcement, you can kind of trust it, you know, that if real law enforcement convicts a guy of rape, that it's usually pretty clear that, yes, he did that. Yeah, and by the way, I think it's also important that, you know, when you get kicked out of school and all these things happen and you didn't commit the rape, Stuart, this is a stain on your life. And you weren't afforded any due process, and that stain of rape, rapist, follows you down the road without due process. No, it's horrible. We have, you know, we have cases in our book where the guys, you know, typically can't get into another college they want to go to. Uh, it's hard to get a job. Their reputations are shot, even though there are privacy rules. The word gets around that so and so was found guilty of rape by his campus, uh, and it has terrible consequences. It not only constricts people's opportunities, it, it destroys their, uh, their sense of their selves. Uh, you know, people have a deep depression. People have post-traumatic stress syndrome. There have been attempted suicides. There's been a successful suicide in a case like this. It was not quite a rape. It was a sexual harassment allegation. It was, a, it was perhaps false, uh, but the guy was so distraught at what it was doing to his life that he killed himself. Thomas Clock was his name, University of Texas, Arlington. And and these and I, I just can't imagine what happens to your psychological self esteem, your 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 sense of yourself, even if no one else finds out. You know, and you know that happened to you, and you know a bunch of people in a place think you did something you didn't do. 
And something horrible, Stuart. This isn't just a garden variety crime. No. This is one of the worst crimes imaginable. I, I actually have told people that if my little girl got raped or something happened and there was a, a vehicular manslaughter, I, I wouldn't be as mad in a, in a car accident as a, some rapist who did something to my girl. And yeah, it's something no, particular it's about rape that's just, it may be the yeah. worst crime. And it destroys, uh, you know, I mean, a, a, a kid who grows up, you know, sort of doing the right thing. He's got nice parents who taught him the right values. He's, you know, been, you know, led to believe all his life that America's fair, that universities are great places and open-minded. And then he sees his life destroyed by a false accusation and a kangaroo court unfair trial. This completely destroys a person's sense of who he is, who his country is, what's going on in the world, whether there's any fairness anywhere, and it's terrible. And what about this case at Amherst involving two students and some alcohol? Tell this story. Sure. It's, um, it's, it's one of the more outrageous stories in our book, but there are a lot of outrageous stories. Uh, if Amherst expelled a male student based on a claim by a female student in October 2013 that he had forced her to perform sex more than 20 months before. Think about that. Why 20 months? The reality was that she had assaulted him, or at least seduced him, by performing oral sex when he was blackout drunk in her room, as his lawyer later proved conclusively. A few hours after their encounter, and after she had summoned a second guy for more sex, Anna had regrets. The woman had regrets. That's uh, that's not her real name. Uh, the guy was her roommate's boyfriend, and that became socially awkward. Later, the woman joined a campus rape activist group, Many months after that, she formally accused Joe of the guy of sexual assault. Amherst's investigation was pathetic. The woman's testimony was incoherent and bizarre, and the hearing before a panel of three extreme feminist ideologues was grossly unfair. So they expelled the guy. He hired a lawyer who easily found text messages sent by the woman that proved what really happened, because one thing that happens in these worlds is people are sending text messages all the time. She had text messages that made it clear that she had been the aggressor in this picture and that she had made up a lie. But Amherst had already kicked him out, and when, when the guy came back to them with this evidence, they said, sorry, too late, case closed. And the real reason was they had various interest groups they wanted to appease, and this guy was a sacrificial lamb. And does he have any due process himself, Stuart? Because I know listeners are probably going, can he sue the people at Amherst? Well, he is suing the people at Amherst, and that's happened a lot. And the way we get to know the facts of a lot of these cases is that more than 100, although the, usually the process is secret, more than at the campus, more than 150 guys who say they were wrongly uh, railroaded have sued, and then a lot of stuff becomes public that was previously secret. You know, you get hold of transcripts and things like that. And so, yes, he has a lawsuit going, but these lawsuits take a long time. If, you know, unless you can afford a lawyer, you're going to have a hard time uh, having getting a lawsuit going at all. And, you know, some judges do the right thing and some don't. Um, but the universities have an awful lot of leverage. So, for example, if the guy wins the first round in a lawsuit, let's say he survives a motion to dismiss, uh, then the school says, well, okay, why don't we settle? We'll stop smearing your name if you'll stop demanding money from us uh, for, de for destroying your name. Right. And usually the leverage is such that the guy is willing to settle uh, because, you know, just because there's not a whole lot of hope that he's going to win $5 million. Well, and it's interesting, Stuart, it's the leftist narrative is always the powerful versus the unpowerful. And here the college has all the power. 
and the individual who's being accused has none. Aren't these the people who are generally for uh, for, for the rights of the accused? I mean, the left, I've always thought, champions the rights of the accused. I mean, I do, yeah. and I'm, I'm center-right like you. Our guests are center-left, left-right. I haven't heard many people ever come on our show and say, hey, let's forget about the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendments. Bad idea. No, but when you put it on a college, in, in the context of rape, you know, a lot of these faculty types and, and the bureaucrats in the administration, these schools of hard thousands collectively across the country of sex bureaucrats, which is what they really do is they, you know, they, they're in charge of these kind of cases. Uh, you know, if you were to say, uh, well, what if somebody was charged with murdering another man or with bank robbery? Should his constitutional rights be respected? Oh, they would say, oh, sure. But when it's a claim of rape, they presume the guilt of every accused guy, and they just want to railroad him, a lot of these people. Right, and then the due process gets in the way of real justice. When we come back, our final segment with Stuart Taylor Jr., an important book. Go to Amazon.com and buy it now. The Campus Rape Frenzy, the attack on due process at America's university. Stuart Taylor's story, here on Our American Stories. is our american stories our final segment in a conversation with Stuart taylor jr author of the campus rape frenzy the attack on due process at america's universities you know for folks listening Stuart, we've all been 18 or 19 we've been at a campus we've had a couple of drinks a young lady's had a couple of drinks you're not even sure what consensual sex is at a certain point uh you know you you there are yeses or there are noes. People are confused. By the way, it's in these moments that bad things can happen. But those moments are certainly different than, than, than typical rape. And how do these things get conflated into all being called rape? And what does it do to the sex lives of kids on campus? You know, what happens to the young couple? And do they have to check off boxes now? Um, what, what, what kind of environment are they creating at campuses for men and women to move and navigate through this very, very difficult and complicated arena called human sexuality. Yeah, no, a lot of um, a lot of schools have just redefined rape. You know, they don't always call it rape. Sometimes they just call it sexual misconduct. But every, you know, the word rape is, is always associated with these decisions. And so them not calling it rape, you know, they, they don't really make a big effort to make it clear that, well, we're not exactly talking about rape. They, they pretend it is rape because a lot of the activists are trying to appease have a very skewed view of what rape is. So here are the rules of the University of Wyoming, for example, defining sexual assault. Quote, anything less than voluntary, sober, enthusiastic, verbal, non-coerced, continual, active, and honest consent is sexual assault. Wow. So if the woman consented, 
clearly and enthusiastically and without coercion. Uh, but a year later, she decided uh, she, she wasn't really being honest and she didn't really want to do it. Why well, that sexual assault is defined at the University of, my, of, of Wyoming. So it, it throws a huge shadow over all sexual activities on campus because basically, and it's very sexist in its administration, basically any woman who decides to accuse any guy at her college with whom she's been somewhat intimate of sexual misconduct, of rape, of sexual assault, of having sex when I was drunk and he was drunk too, but it was his fault because I was drunk, uh, is in a position to be able to destroy the life of any of the guy if she decides she's mad at him because he dumped her or she needs an excuse because she was cheating on her boyfriend or for any number of reasons. But also the women are influenced by uh, far-left professors and far-left uh, bureaucrats uh, who are guilt-presuming types in this area. They're influenced to believe that they were wronged, raped, uh, sexual, sexually assaulted, whatever, uh, when in fact all that happened was they had an unhappy sexual experience. And this really messes with the minds of the young women. I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're hearing from authority figures that they should see it as rape when they were disappointed. Uh, this is not healthy for anyone. No, and you know, I, I was in law school at, at UVA, Stewart, at a time that Andrea Dworkin was coming up. And some of her writing, I thought, well, this is just so out there. And what she intimated that almost all sex between men and women was tantamount to rape. I mean, she was so extreme. And I thought she, po- she can't possibly have an influence on the culture. And, of course, you and I both know the influence that Andrea Dworkin has had. Oh, well, she did. In the space. And her, her ally in this uh, sometime co-author, a law professor named Catherine McKinnon, uh, had more influence. And one of her famous quotations that attracted a lot of derision at the time from sane people was, quote, I call it rape whenever a woman has sex and feels violated, end quote. Well, that's pretty much the way the campus disciplinary codes treat it these days. Let's go back to some of the stories. Let's talk about the Yale basketball captain. Yeah, Jack Montague. What happened with him uh, is he suddenly stopped playing. He disappears from the basketball team in early 2016, and this was Yale's greatest basketball season ever. He was the captain. Uh, he disappeared from the campus. He's gone. People are saying, what happened to Jack Montague? Because he's, you know, a very prominent guy on campus. Well, it turned out that he had been expelled by a campus kangaroo court based on an accusation that a female student had made more than a year after they had sexual contact four times and after he had lost interest in her. She didn't even want to bring charges, but the university got wind that she'd complained to a friend, and so they pushed her to bring charges, essentially. By her account, she consented to the first, third, and fourth sexual contacts, but she told the clearly biased Yale sex bureaucrats that the third time, after getting into bed naked with the guy, she had used subtle body language silently to signal reluctance to have sex. She didn't say stop. She didn't say no. She didn't resist. She didn't try and get away. She ended up spending the night in his bed. By his account, she clearly consented. But she, he ends up on trial before this kangaroo court for supposedly raping her that night because she was drunk and because supposedly uh, she signaled through body language without saying anything that she really was kind of reluctant to have sex that night. So he's found guilty and expelled. Unbelievable. And, and let's talk about the data, Stuart. Um, the claims of one in five women being sexually assaulted over four years of college are being thrown around. But the DOJ stats suggest one in 40. 
one in 80 raped, one in 40 assaulted, one in 80 raped. Still way too high by any standard, Stuart, but a long way from one in five. If it was actually one in five, can you imagine anyone even letting their daughters or sons go to college? No, that's exactly right. I mean, the one in five, it's, it's, it's ridiculous on its face because it's inconsistent with the way everyone behaves. You know, parents who claim to believe it send their kids to send their daughters to college, supposedly into this terrible combat zone. Uh, you know, students who claim to believe it still get drunk and get in bed with guys who they claim they didn't really want to have sex with. And the media that publish it, uh, kind of ignore the fact that uh, this is the kind of rape rate you have or the sexual assault rate you have in a war zone where rape is an instrument of war, like East Germany at the end of World War II when right. the Russians came through and were raping everybody in sight, like similar situations at the Congo. And the reality is um, that it's almost ten times, that one in five is almost ten times the actual sexual assault rate. And by the way, sexual assault includes a lot of, you know, lesser things that are not rape. They're not good, but they're not rape, such as, you know, an unwanted touch on the rear end, something like that is technically a sexual assault. And that gets into the statistics. But the way they compile this bogus one in five is that prestigious groups take surveys. The Washington Post took one. Uh, the uh, the American Association of American Universities even took one. And you wonder, why would they want to exaggerate their rape rate? But It's a long story, but they did. And the way they get it is they, they define rape or sexual assault way more broadly than the law does, way more broadly than common understanding does. And so if a woman is, you know, asked, uh, have you ever had sex when you were drunk? And she che- and she says, yes, they check the box while she was raped. If the woman is asked, have you ever uh, been forcibly kissed when you didn't want to be? And she says, yes, they check the box that says uh, sexual assault. They never ask these women, were you raped or were you sexually assaulted, which might seem like the straightforward to do, way to do a survey if you wanted accurate answers. The reason they don't ask is that they know almost all the women would say no, right. haven't been raped, haven't been sexually assaulted, and those aren't, that's not the answers they want. So that's where these numbers come from, and they've been, uh, they've been ballyhooed by some of the top uh, politicians in the country and in a way that's uh, really a disgraceful distortion of reality. What can parents do about all this? Folks are listening, they're sending their kids off to college. And by the way, right. we all know that we, we give our daughters real admonitions about things not to do, things to be careful of, because there are bad men in this world. What do we tell our sons? Yeah, it's a very tough decision, because as long as this goes on, and I'm afraid it's going to go on for a while, there's 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 no good answer. I mean, if I had a son, I have two wonderful daughters. They're both through college. Uh, I don't have a son, but if I did, and we talk about this a little bit at the end of the book, it would say, well, you know, you could be celibate, but, um, you know, that may not be realistic. Uh, so you better be very, very careful that you know the character in a deep way of any woman with whom you become intimate, or another guy if it's a gay relationship. Yep. Because if the other person, the woman, let's say, ever decides she wants to ruin your life, she will probably be able to do so simply by going to the campus bureaucrats and making an allegation that you committed sexual misconduct with her. You know, even if she doesn't even have, even if she doesn't lie, even if she just says, well, I was drunk, he was drunk, we had sex. Typically, the campuses will take a situation like that and say, well, if she was drunk, that makes him a rapist. It doesn't matter if he was drunk. So, that's the hard truth. I would be actually less worried for a daughter because 
um, women who, uh, you know, who, who kind of keep their wits about them and who don't get blind, drunk, and naked in bed with people who they don't want to have sex with, really. Uh, you know, uh, you know, women, women who behave sensibly are not very likely to be raped at all. Uh, those who are raped, real rapes, uh, tend to be women who are not behaving sensibly, uh, you know, which doesn't justify a real rape, but uh, it does affect the calculation as to who's really in more danger from all this, the guys or the women. And then the serial rapists, well, that's just, you know, they're there and they're going to do bad things and it's very hard to protect yourself from the real true monsters. Uh, but yeah, that, those are frankly, the... although there's a lot of bogus research that suggests most of these alleged campus rapes are done by serial rapists, uh, there's very little evidence that, uh, you know, uh, that, that there are a lot of serious serial rapists around on the campus. Exactly, and they're, they're, they're scattered around in society and we read about them in the papers, but they're the outliers and this kind of behavior is not prevalent on America's college campuses, and I think yeah. everybody knows this, Stuart. Thank, thanks for this work, Stuart. Uh, Stuart Taylor, Jr., author of The Campus Rape Frenzy, The Attack on Due Process at America's Universities, an important story here on Our American Stories.